The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithy's Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. G'day, g'day, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to the All Australian Music Stories. This episode features two vocal groups from the 1950s, The Crescents and one of the all-time legendary groups of Australian music, The Deltones. I'm speaking with the lead singer of both groups, Cole Loughnan. Cole's career is simply amazing and quite unique. In fact, his achievements are so extensive, I've had to break the podcast into two episodes. Part 1, this episode, features on Cole's early years as the lead singer of The Crescents and The Deltones, with Part 2 looking how Cole stopped being a frontman, took up the saxophone, and was a member of the leading Australian prog rock band, Ayers Rock. As well as Ayers Rock, he also spent time in the Daily Wilson Big Band, as well as working with the likes of Peter Allen and Frank Sinatra. I hope you enjoy listening to the career of Cole Loughnan. Well, it's early in the morning and it's time to make a start And I put my poly surfboard on the rack upon my car I head down to the surfside where the waves are breaking fine I'm gonna catch a mountain but I won't go down the mine You gotta walk the plank, ride the hook Corner left and right and keep it nice and tight And now the time is drawing near, you're moving down the wall Now steady as she goes, you got your toes upon the nose And now you're hanging pipe, hanging pipe Come a little bit closer and you will see I was meant for you dear and you were meant for me Let our love grow stronger as the years go by
As a 16-year-old, together with three friends, Mike Downs, Kel Police and Dennis O'Keefe, you formed Vocal Harmony Group and named yourselves the Four Tops, later changing your name to The Crescents when Dennis left the group. Rock and roll had ended your life. Elvis was starting to make his name. Must have been a very exciting time for you, Cole. For sure, yeah, it was definitely exciting um, as a teenager in those days, you know. And, uh, of course, we got together the... The way we got together is that three of us went to school at Morris Brothers and um, Kel Police lived in Maroubra. We all all lived in the local area in Maroubra. I lived in Randwick. And so Mike Downs and Dennis and myself were in the school choir at, at Morris Brothers. So that's how the singing sort of part of it came about. We sort of just hung around and we ended up meeting Kel somehow and uh, we decided to... Uh, would have a crack at, you know, being a vocal group, you know, being influenced, that, you know, by vocal groups at the time that we heard. Uh, we thought we'd sort of try and copy them, which most people did at that stage. Very little was original, you know, so people did covers of things in those days. So that's how we got going anyway. And obviously rock and roll was, was new on the scene. How did you find your way to Elvis? Yeah, well, <laughs> I was 13. I can remember it very well. I was sitting um, my sister's uh, place down at Maroubra. She lived at Maroubra as well. She just had a baby, uh, my niece, Kim. And uh, so I was 13 at the time and I was nursing Kim. And then all of a sudden, Heartbreak Hotel came on the radio and I thought, wow, what's this? You know, could hear the big echo and all that where they used to record in the toilet then in the bathroom for the reverb, you know, put the mic in the toilet. Uh, that was pretty exciting, you know, for a young guy. I mean, I grew up listening to jazz, you know, that's what the music of the day was when I was a kid. So this was new. This was all very new and um, so something that would attract a young 13-year-old, I'm sure. Right, yes. Uh, so your parents were an, a big musical influence on you early? Oh, huge, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, my parents loved music, particularly my father. He had a fantastic record collection um, of all the sort of, you know, the music of the day was like Buble, you know, is today. Like what Buble does is what was happening back then. It was, that's the style of music, swing, uh, popular music. And it wasn't particularly commercial, commercial, you know, like bubblegum music. It was, it was uh, you know, you had uh, the swing bands like Glenn Miller and you had uh, Benny Goodman, and you had the singers like Ella Fitzgerald and Doris Day, and, and your Sinatra, uh, yeah, and, Johnny yep. Mathis later, and yep. uh, and you had the tenors like Mario Lanza, who was a great tenor. Um, now we've got you know we had Pavarotti and people like that in the past. So there was a lot of music, but of course rock and roll hadn't come yet. You know? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Just on its way, basically. Well, yeah, it sort of evolved out of the. Uh, swing and, and and jazz i guess that was it there was the next transition for something to change and uh they used the influences were you know started to come out of um you know when you heard you know bill haley's rock around the clock it was definitely swinging and uh that's it come out of the uh of of listening to the jazz guys i guess and then it ne took the next step one of your neighbours was uh, a guy called Frank Coglin. He was the uh, band leader at the Trocadero at the time, very famous band leader. Yeah, That he was, was obviously the magic transported itself over the fence to you. Yeah, 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 he lived over the fence. The back fence was where Frank lived and um, Mr and Mrs Coglin and uh, their son Craig. And Craig used to practice the piano like a lot. I could hear the piano go. And then now and again, you'd hear Frank, you know. And uh, Frank played trombone, a great trombonist, but he played trumpet as well. 
So uh, I, he, he practised the trumpet. That's what I used to hear. I didn't hear him practise the trombone much. And so I got fascinated. I used to sort of stand on a box at the back of the fence and listen to him. And one day, uh, you know, I stuck my head over the fence and said, gee, that sounds good, Mr Coggan. And he said, oh, well, here, son, you know, here's a trumpet mouthpiece. Have a go on this. So uh, I had a go on it and I wasn't very good, but it, <laughs> but I pestered my parents to let me learn the trumpet. But they said, you know, we lived in a semi, so <laughs> I guess, you know, the trumpet's pretty loud. So I guess they felt sorry for the neighbours. So the trumpet got knocked on the head and so I stuck to uh, the singing. <laughs> and um, over time, did Frank see much of your career as it blossomed into to being the artist that you were? Um, yes, he did. Yeah, later on, I went round to his house later on, and you know, and and talked to him, and he was pretty aware of it and of of what had happened, you know, because you know the Crescents and the Deltones had become pretty popular, so you know, he he got to hear about it. Well, I'm certain there was a stage there where Cole Laughlin was was unavoidable. You were here, there and everywhere and TV, radio, on record. And yeah, there was there was a time there where you were one of the biggest stars in Australian music at that stage. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a whole group of people basically back then, the bandstand crowd, you know, the Little Paddy and Warren Williams and Lucky Star and the, the Deltones. And, you know, there was a whole batch of uh, people... So how did you gain the attention of uh, the legendary Johnny O'Keefe? The Crescents had, you know, with the four tops, Dennis O'Keefe had left and we'd become a trio with Mike Downs and Kel and myself. And we, you know, we we mainly rehearsed and didn't do anything. And there was a dance at Maroubra that we played at. And uh, that was probably the first thing I can remember us ever doing. The next things was when the uh, when we appeared at the Leichhardt Police Boys Club. So I think that's around about the time Johnny would have become aware of us. He was an amazing person. He was. Well, Johnny uh, promoted the Leichhardt dancers, is that right? Sorry? Johnny promoted the dancers? Um, uh, the, yes, yeah. he, he, he ran the dance and everything, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he, he become, I think he became aware of us. He was an incredible guy for finding and nurturing, encouraging young people. And uh, he helped so many people along the way. It was a great mind. I mean, it was a genius, really. So it wasn't like he was trying to take all the oxygen for himself. He was, he was quite prepared to share it out. And, no, and, he wasn't. Yep. You know, he was a very highly intelligent man, you know, a, a great brain uh, and a great sense for business, a great sense for, for seeing what potential was in somebody or possible potential and he helped us a lot he sort of got us going and and so uh he's taken a great shine on you jok he's 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 got his tv show six o'clock rock and in march 1959 you guys make your first appearance on six o'clock rock that must have been some sort of experience for you yeah yeah definitely yeah definitely i can probably still feel us shaking in our boots yeah would have been nervous you know you can imagine going on television for the first time and uh, what that would have been like, yeah, it would have been a bit scary. <laughs> and te- television was in its early stages anyway in Australia, so it was as as rockers you're learning the the craft as as television people, everyone's still learning the craft. So it was like a um, an infancy for everybody at the same stage, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It would have been. Yeah, that's right. It was early days. I mean, TV had been around. I think we started. I think it was around 
1953 or something when we first got TV in Australia. Okay, yep. So it wasn't that long after. I can remember getting um, our first black and white TV set. We are about one of the first in our street to get it. And, you know, neighbours come and they have to have a look at the TV. <laughs> but so a few years later, uh, uh, you know, just four or five years later, uh, this was all happening with, you know, Bandstand, Six O'Clock Rock and that. So, yeah, it was in... In its very early stages, so I suppose everyone was finding their way around. Yes, definitely. So you've, you're making appearances on the ABC on uh, 6 O'Clock Rock, and uh, the Crescent's also performing on Bandstand on Channel 9 with Brian Henderson, and Teen Time on Channel 7, any, any network that was you, the Crescent's were on, basically. So, and, and how did these shows work? Were they pre-recorded or they were live shows? Well, Bandstand was all pre-recorded, so everyone mimed on Bandstand. But I believe uh, it's a long time ago. We're going, Sheldon, we're going back uh, almost 60 years. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's kind of close to it anyway. Yep. So, yeah, so uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but I, I'm pretty sure the ABC had it. That's where uh, Six O'Clock Rock was recorded. I'm pretty sure they... They had a different system there. I think it was a lot of it was live. I think um, I'd have to check those facts, but you know, not hundred percent. But I think some of it may have been pre-recorded. Some of it definitely would have been live. Okay, yeah. and you said that um, Johnny sort of Johnny O'Keefe sort of nurtured the uh, the growing talent that around him at that stage. Mm-hmm. How did he become your official manager? Oh, uh, I think that just evolved. I mean, he'd probably just said, look, I want to manage you guys, and we wouldn't have said no, you know. Yes. Uh, he, he pretty much directed us and, you know, got us together, and when we rehearsed, he'd advise us on our clothes and stuff like that. You know, we, we at one stage we had these uh, white cardigans with the uh, quarter moon crescent insignia and black pants and black shirt I think and so that was his idea I think the Crescents put you know so he 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 was you know uh, pretty much behind what we did and responsible for getting us going there you know so he sort of added a bit of professionalism to you guys oh definitely we were just kids you know we didn't know what we were doing and he (laughs) he was a pro and you know he'd been around a long time and as I said he was a pretty smart cookie that's for sure you you guys have JOK managing you now, so it's a obviously a, a shot in the arm for for the Crescents. There, you're a growing group, and so Johnny O'Keefe gets you a spot in August '59 on one of the Lee Gordon Big Shows, headlined by Johnny Ray. This must have been an eye opener for you guys from the suburbs. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely a a big uh, step up from you know working at the Leichhardt Police Boys Club and the local dance here at Maroubra or something. Yeah, definitely a step up. And one of the biggest stars of, of the time, Johnny Ray, did you have any interaction with him on the tour? Well, we met him and he was backstage. You know, of course, when you're backstage, you're, he's got his own dressing room and you've got yours, you know, backstage. But we did meet him and, you know, he was, in, he was uh, quite uh, complimentary about us and, and, you know, encouraging to young group of three young guys you know so he wasn't a diva or he wasn't aloof or anything he was a very nice guy he seemed you know it's i can't remember exactly but he was very polite and uh not big time or anything it was just a very nice guy so on the tours did you perform your own sets on the show um yes we did yeah yeah we did uh, the the tunes that we knew at the time uh which have been would have been i guess 
I don't know if Mr. Blue would have been out then. I don't know. No, I don't. Oh, we hadn't released it as a, a single at no, that stage. No, probably not. Yeah. I, I just can't remember whatever we were doing at that time. It's I just said 60 years back. So, yeah. To remember the set list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we're disappointed that you don't, but we'll, oh. we'll forgive you there. So. <laughs> I'm sure it's somewhere in the archives somewhere in the I'm certain on Google <laughs> the Deltones are, are one of the or well, they are the the uh, the number one vocal harmony group in Australia at this stage they often backed the uh, Johnny O'Keefe with the uh, the DJs but at different times you backed Johnny O'Keefe um, at, for a few live sets and stuff like that yeah yeah six o'clock rock uh, which we backed other acts as well and then we did recordings um, you know uh, background recordings for some of Johnny O'Keefe's things. I don't think we were credited on them. If we were, it would have been um, as the Eddie Cash singers or something that was a made-up name um, by Johnny. Uh, but we didn't do – of course, the Deltones did Johnny's backings, you know, and then the DJs were Johnny's band. And uh, those couple of those guys did vocals too – Bob Bertels and Johnny Green and the two sax players um, would have done some vocal backings here and there. Um, and so, no, we didn't – I don't think we ever appeared as a, a vocal backing group with Johnny, at, certainly not at the stadium. Okay, uh, yes. TV was yep. mostly, yeah. The Crescents have made the right impression on Lee Gordon and Alan Heffernan because in October of the same year, 1959, you were given a place on the, uh, the next big show tour – this time headlined by Fabian. Not possessed with the, the greatest of voice, and rightly or wrongly, music historians often deride Fabian. But at that stage, and you were at the coalface, Beatlemania had not arrived yet. Fabian created pandemonium in Australia, mostly by the adoring teenage girls. What was it like being caught up in this rock and roll hysteria? Well, probably a bit overwhelming for young guys, but that's what was happening. You know, I think it's uh, television, the invention of television and that it all of a sudden had brought everything into people's lounge rooms. By then, everyone had a TV set. And um, so people would see things and it's just like anything now. If, if somebody's well-known, people seem to, they seem to attract a crowd, you know. <laughs> people want to see them for whatever reason. And so I think that was it, you know. It was certainly all pretty exciting times, you know. Was it a different feeling to the Johnny Ray tour or Johnny Ray created that yeah, sense of Yeah, it probably was. Yeah, Johnny Ray was a crooner and, um, you know, a different sort of type of show. So Fabian, I think it was, uh, you know, higher energy sort of type show. Screaming teenage girls. Screaming teenage girls, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So the Crescents were a fan favourite amongst the girls as well. Did you ever receive a hard time from the, the forgotten boyfriends of the uh, of the girls, you know, considering this is the <laughs> time of the bodgies and the widgies? And- no, um, I never, never really had that, never had any aggro. Look, I've heard stories about that, especially in America, and, you know, I've read stories about it, but it didn't happen to us. We never had any aggro guys wanting to beat us up because, okay. you know, our, their girlfriend was... Uh, liked us or whatever so no that never happened fortunately <laughs> the crescents again you you appeared on the next big show which is the ricky nelson tour um did you have much to do with the godfathers of australian rock and roll lee gordon and al heffernan well al heffernan definitely he he went on tour with us um and so we got to know him you know, much better lee gordon was somebody we saw now and again Lee Gordon was sort of like the CEO, you know, that you only see him now and again. So we dealt mainly with O'Keefe 
and Alan Hefnan, and uh, so that was it. So we had, we very rarely saw Lee Gordon or had that much to do with him. And the big show, the tours, they must have been like a uh, a machine rolling into each city, um, having all these all these star performers, and must have been a logistical nightmare, especially with the uh, the technical requirements. Most of the stadium sound wouldn't have been that great, and no. Nah. No, far cry, you know, we were all crowded around one mic and, you know, uh, the sound systems were very, very poor there to compared to what... But, uh, you know, people could hear it. I guess you, if you listen to it, I guess if you heard a recording of something from the stadium, it probably wouldn't sound that good today, you know, if you heard it. Like uh, a live mix or something like yeah, that. Yeah, a live mix or something. It would probably be terrible, the speakers. Because I think, I don't know what they used. I think they just used the speakers that were used for the boxing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. I don't think they did anything special because it was going to be music, you know, like today. It would be a different story. But that was it. They they were announcing the boxes and and then out we came. And people such as Frank Sinatra, Louis Armstrong, Johnny Ray, they're using the same equipment. They're using the same equipment, yeah. That's it. That's all we had. And uh, it wasn't that advanced, but uh, people got used to it. And now we're spoiled. We want, you know... HD, Super HD, you know, Blu-ray, whatever. We've got, we're, we're so spoilt with what we have now. So you guys were signed to Lead On Records. What was that experience like going into the studio and cutting your first record? Uh, must have been a surreal moment for you guys as teenagers or did you just take it all in your stride? No, I don't think we took it in our stride. I think we would have been nervous and, um, you know, just went in, tried to be as prepared as we could, you know, rehearsed up. I mean, you know, fail to prepare and prepare to fail, whatever, yes. you know, if you don't practice and do. So we, we learned our stuff and we went in there and uh, and did it. And, you know, you didn't really get... You could do it again, you know, if you'd mucked it up the first time, you could do it again or whatever. But you couldn't do what you can do today was was fix things. In recordings now, you can do anything at a recording. You know, if you make a mistake, you can just fix one note. If a note's out of tune, you can, you know, tune it up on the on our program uh those days you recorded everything together the band was in the studio and we were in the studio and the guy says okay take one and off you go so you're all sitting in the one room together yeah in the one room and everything yeah just uh, nothing uh no you know very little separation and um but it had sort of a bit of a, a a magic to it i suppose that it was like that it wasn't uh all layered like it is today so you're getting you listen to the record and what you hear from the 50s is what actually happened in the studio yeah yeah that is the magic of the day i think more or less like um i think what recording went for in those days was a live sound because that's all you knew so you wanted to sound like it was when it was live which makes sense so that's what they did so they just positioned the mics and you know uh, that was it you'd get spill you get drums coming into the into the vocal mics but they probably didn't worry about it now they've you know they put everyone in a separate booth now and a lot of times in recordings you don't see people the recording's finished and somebody says oh i did that recording so i didn't know you were there and they said well because they come later after you've recorded and overdubbed it 
And with computers and whatnot these days, someone can you know record part of a track in some part of the world, send it over, and, send it over, yep. and somebody records it over in Switzerland or something, <laughs> and it's back. Yeah, very very different. You're in the studios under the direction, as we said before, of Eddie Cash Jr., which is Johnny O'Keefe. Yeah. Um, not many people got to see Johnny work in the studio at close quarters. What was he like to work with? Uh, he was good. I mean, he was. Um he insisted on everything being just right. He he was a perfectionist, a real perfectionist, and um, but he wasn't. I don't, you know I just found him very easy to get along with. He was he was okay. He was very considerate of people that were younger than him. You know he was older and uh, he knew we were young and you know he 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 didn't didn't really push you around. He. He was a nice. He was a nice guy, you know. So he was. He wasn't as manic at that stage as, as no. everyone was making him out to be. No, not yep. then. Yeah. No. After the car accident. Yeah, that definitely. Changed him. And I'm suppose you know you're looking back, and I'm sure it would. You know, going through something like he did, and oh well, I think I think he was probably because of everything that happened. Um, things just changed after that. Mentally, he wasn't the same. You know what he was doing in his personal life then was questionable. And, you know, uh, he just wasn't the guy that he was before. It did change him. He was disfigured, very heavily disfigured in the face. You know, and he was, you know, he, he, he was, you know, reasonably good looking before that. But after it, he, he looked and he lost a lot of his confidence, you know, I guess. So you're in the studio working, um, you know, with the Crescents. Your first single is a song called Ever Lovin'. Are you my darling? The only one I'm dreaming of. Well, I gotta make your mind. Cause you're the only one I'll ever love. Ever love and say you leave me never. Ever love and I'll be yours forever. Ever love and I'll be ever loving. So you've cut your first record as a group. You've officially made it. Did you ever hear Ever Lovin' played on the radio? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the thing about back then, the DJs were very, very supportive of Australian music. Um, the DJs as in the DJs, radio disc jockeys. Radio disc yes. jockeys, yeah, yeah, yeah. Radio announcers or whatever they, you know, radio personalities or whatever they call I Just them. not to get mixed up with the band, the DJs. Yeah, the, no, yeah, yeah, sure. They were they were supportive and, uh, and you know, you'd go into the studio when you got a new record and, you know, they'd, they'd have you on the radio and talk to you and uh, just like they do today, pretty much the same sort of thing. Yeah, no, they, they supported Australian music very much, I think. The song on the uh, flip side to Ever Lovin' was You Broke My Heart. This was co-written by yourself and Johnny O'Keefe. If you see tears rolling from my eyes, it's because you broke my heart. You broke my heart. Do you remember when you said goodbye? Oh, darling, you 
Tell us anything about how the song came into existence, the writing process. God, I don't know. That's, again, you know, nearly 60 years ago. I can't remember how we did it and uh, just what I wrote and what Johnny wrote. Um, I guess it would have been a bit of both. I mean, I was getting into sort of playing the piano then and understanding a bit about harmony through arranging the group's harmonies and, you know, that. So I think musically for what it's worth, whatever, the song was pretty simple, but probably I would have probably figured out the chords and maybe some of the lyrics and Johnny would have done some of the lyrics and that was it. But I just don't remember the writing process. It was probably done pretty quickly to get something for the flip side that wasn't a cover, you know. And it's very rare back in those early days for an Australian composition to be released. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, everyone copied, you know, that was it. You did covers and... That was all. There was very little original music back then, practically nothing. So, yeah, something that you guys can hang your hat on as well. So, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, Ever Loving, it wasn't the hit everyone had hoped it would be. It sold well in Sydney. However, your next single, Mr. Blue, was a top five hit in Australia. But if you decide to call on me, ask for Mr. Blue. Presence were now regarded as a number two vocal group in Australia, uh, behind only the Deltones. Showing the strength of the Crescents, the original version of Mr. Blue was by an American band called the Fleetwoods and was released into the Australian market at the exact same time as the Crescents album was released or the, the Crescents single was released. Remarkably, the Crescents version overshadowed the American record and gained most of the t- attention and the record sales which was something of a rarity in those days. Was there a feeling of dread for you guys or optimism when you knew that you were going up against the original? Or? Um, at first, I think so, because they, you know, come out at the same time. So it was a bit of a worry as to whether we'd get any attention. But um, ours did okay, and uh, that soon sort of passed, you know. So, so it was pretty short because we were getting airplay um, and the, the, uh, the track did quite well so that was it yeah but at first yeah sure so the crescents recorded some great songs over their time such as one more kiss
Picture of Love. Sure, on Sunday while strolling through the park. Picture the two of us kissing in the dark. Like of God When you wish upon a star. Another song from the Crescents, Dreaming. What are your favourite songs from the period of the Crescents? Oh, gee, it's been such a long time since I've revisited any of those tracks. Um, there's a track called Love, Love, Love. We like that. I think we like that. It was sort of bouncy and uh, sort of happy. <laughs> uh, 
sort of little thing. Love. I think that was one. I mean, at the time, you know, we did all of them. And a lot of times, if you went into recording, you just went in and recorded them, you know. And then a lot of times you didn't record, uh, didn't perform um, many of them live. So you recorded sometimes and didn't. It was like the Deltones. You, you, half the stuff we never did okay, yes. live. You know, and he recorded them, never actually performed them live. Um, yeah, Love, Love, Love was one that... Uh, I know Kel, I'm still in contact with uh, Kel uh, Police. Uh, he went as Kel Palace then, but his real name is Police, you know, okay. Kel Police. You know, but I suppose he didn't want to be affiliated with the uh, police department. I don't know. And I suppose but, Palace uh, sounds very regal as yeah, well. So. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, but he likes that one too, and I, I, I like that one. It was not a bad track. Yeah. So you played at the uh, the Sydney Stadium, the old Tin Shed. What was it like performing in that in there and performing on the revolving stage? Oh, amazing! Well, of course you got to see everyone because it was revolving. So you know you you, you go around and you see the same people and they'd be waving or whatever come around again. It was quite unique. Uh, they had that at the old Trocadero too, not a revolving stage like going round and round, but they had a stage that revolved. So one band, Frank Goglin's band or whatever, was on the uh, the stage, and then the next band they'd just go around and come back around. The next band would be set up and it'd just come around once, just revolve once, and that was it. So the revolving stage bit had been around for a long time, and you don't sort of see those things now. I remember hearing a story of Frank Sinatra coming out and saying to Lee Gordon, "Like I'm not playing on this stage. What is this stage?" So I'm sure to the American, you know, the big American it, artist, it, it, it was an it eye It was opener. a bit. It wasn't real steady, you know. I mean, it was sort of. It, it sort of had a few hiccups, you know, going along. And, <laughs> it, it wasn't. It was a bit like being on a boat, okay, you know, yeah. being on a ship. You know, uh, it wasn't completely steady from memory. Uh, so it wasn't really smooth. If they made one today, it'd probably be great. But, you know, the mechanics in those days weren't probably as uh, advanced as they are now. Well, one of the stories goes that the uh, the motor broke down on one of these stages and they actually had people underneath pushing the stage <laughs> pushing around, it around in, a, yeah. in a show. I don't know if that's true, but it, it sounds great anyway. In all, the Crescents released seven singles and two EPs from 1959 to 61, including one of the best titled EPs of the era, Crescents Hit It For A Six. Strangely, the cover photo of the uh, of of the Crescents on this, you guys are dressed in baseball outfits rather than cricketers. So that was a that was a strange photo of the era. Yeah, I, I'm not sure why they did that. Perhaps they were aiming for the American market. Perhaps I don't know. I mean, in those days, I don't know if many Australian records would have gone overseas. Probably none. But uh, perhaps 
Perhaps that was the thinking about it. I don't know. It's a strange one, isn't it? Yeah. It's one just that a I've bit wondered different. about myself. Exactly. But anyway, there we were in our baseball outfits. <laughs> so looking back, how would you describe the, the Crescent's rock and roll journey? Um, it, was, it was short. I mean, it wasn't that long. You know, about three years, I suppose, all up. Um, it was great. I mean, it was an incredible time for a young kid, uh, you know, that brought up in Randwick and went to Morris Brothers and all of a sudden you're doing all these things, you know. So I suppose it was very exciting and uh, it, it, I enjoyed the time with that group. I think it was being the first thing that I ever did musically. Uh, it sort of stays with you a bit and so, uh, you know, the most of the other guys, I think, uh, have good memories of that time, you know. So the music scene in Sydney is a very tight-knit community at that stage, and most of the stars would often party together. Of course, these parties would involve members of various bands jamming together and, and singing and playing instruments at these parties. The leading musicians of the day even helped you celebrate your 18th and 21st birthdays. They must have been some sort of rockin' parties for you guys. Yeah, the parties were uh, at a friend, of, a family friend of um, my mother and father's, uh, Tom Hart, and uh, down, and he lived in Rosebury, and uh, he used to put the. He was a, actually a funny story. He was the the baker. He was our baker, and used to turn up in with a horse and cart uh, okay. <laughs> to uh, to deliver the bread. So that's how we got to know him. And uh, once the Crescent started to evolve, and the, he was a bit of a music fan, especially rock and roll. He loved all that. And uh, they he put on the parties down his house, and they're quite famous amongst. If you ask, you know, Little Patty or you know Warren Williams or any of the guys, they remember the parties at Tom's house because everyone went to them. Okay, yeah. Uh, and Johnny O'Keefe went there, and uh, Robbie G, and. You know, just heaps of people went to the parties. They put on all these parties and they were great, you know, and people would have a sing around the piano and, yeah, it was good. Just good, good fun. So if only only we had documentary crews documenting what was taking place at these parties, or maybe not, but the, yeah. the musical side of things would have been fantastic to, yeah, it would to have step been back because, in time. Yeah, it was, uh, people would drop in, you know, from after gigs and to the party and, you know, to sort of go on. Yeah, no, it was good, good fun. As a, as rock and pop stars of the time, it's a it's a, uh, an ever growing music industry. I suppose it's fair to say that the uh, the useful innocence that you guys were were experiencing at the time was shattered in 19, in July nineteen sixty two when the Deltones lead singer Noel Waterberg was tragically killed in a car accident in Sydney. He was just twenty three years old and seemingly had the world at his feet. It must have been a very heavy scene for the music industry of the time. It was, yeah. It would have been terrible for the guys um uh, i mean i knew noel i knew who he was and you know i'd met him but uh, he wasn't a close friend or anything um i was friends with um with uh, warren lucas who was in the deltones i knew him pretty well uh and um uh, he was instrumental in 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 recommending that i replace noel after you know he passed away but uh, yeah it was very tragic it would have been terrible and he was only young um and uh tragically killed i went past the spot yesterday i drove to wollongong to do a gig yesterday a little jazz gig down in wollongong and i uh, passed president avenue every time i pass that and turn that corner i think of him there because that's what would have happened he turned the corner and 
he ran into a pole somehow, I don't know. He wasn't drinking, uh, there was nothing, it was just an accident. Yeah, he'd been spearfishing with a couple of mates. So That's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, I don't know what happened. Nobody knows, obviously travelling perhaps a little too fast, maybe, but nobody knows what actually happened. And you know, back then, seatbelts weren't, weren't in cars, or they weren't, no. certainly weren't mandatory, and, and car safety was a, was a yeah. lot different. So, it yeah. was in a little uh, VW, I know that uh, that's, was the car they had. Um, yeah, no, it would have been a terrible time for the Deltones. And the Deltones at the same time, they're, they're one of the biggest acts in the country at this stage. They've, uh, they've had their most successful hit at that stage, Get a Little Dirt on Your Hands. When I was a little boy, my daddy used to say to me, son, we got a lot of big plans and a lot of hard work to be done. Go get your marbles, put them in the house, tear down your castles in the sand. Come with your pappy to the cotton patch, get a little dirt on your hands. Get a little dirt on your hands, boy. Get a little dirt on your hands. If you want to grow up to be a big, big man, you got to get a little dirt on your hands. was a pretty big weed Left the country for the city Made a slicker with a shady deal He said, hold up the tavern Take all the money Run as fast as you can If you're gonna get along In this big bad world You gotta get a little dirt on your hands Get a little three members, Warren Lucas, Brian Perkins and Ian Pee Wee Wilson. 
just young men themselves were distraught at the death of their friend and, and, and they considered giving up. However, they were encouraged by the Weiderberg family and, they, and, and as a group they continued on. They decided they wanted, their, wanted you as their new lead singer. So without any audition, you become the lead singer of one of the most popular acts in the country. This must have come as a surprise to you. Um, well, uh, I, Warren Lucas had talked to me about it before, after Noel had passed away. Um, as you said, they sort of decided they were going to, you know, he'd want them to go on. So Warren and myself were mates and Warren sort of indicated that, you know, that they'd, they'd like me to do it. So it was, that's what happened. It was a pretty quick changeover, really. It wasn't that long before they started up again. Um, I guess, you know, what could you do? You couldn't do anything about it except to give it up or go on and they decide to go on. Did you feel much pressure agreeing to join the Deltones? No, the Crescents had sort of just just about run the gamut because Mike Downs had left and we'd replaced him with a guy called Alan Roberts and Alan did a good job and was very good but it wasn't quite the same and I think it was time to move. You know, the Crescents weren't really doing much at that stage. Um, it had sort of run its course more or less so and so it came at a time when I probably was thinking about doing something and uh, and it came and uh, no it wasn't really it wasn't a pressure so much I suppose it would have been trying to get all the material together and all that stuff you know right, would yeah. have been, I would have thought about that but um, you would have been busy yeah it would have been busy yep. sort of doing my homework yeah yeah definitely <laughs> Not many bands can recover from losing their lead singer. ACDC would go through something similar 20 years into the future with the death of their lead singer, Bon Scott. Their new singer, Brian Johnson, has stated that while he wanted to forge a new chapter in the band's career, he felt the, the best way he could respect Bon's legacy was to go out and give everything to the Bon Scott era songs. Did you feel that same, something similar with Noel's songs? No, because we didn't really do... Any, one of... Uh, the songs that is sort of associated with Noel was Get a Little Dirt on Your Hands. We never actually did that. Okay, yeah. So maybe they felt like that was their sort of big hit with him. It was a, a, a sort of a big one for them. So we did some of the songs that they would have done, like Diamonds covers like Walking Along and uh, um, Mr. Bassman. I don't know whether they did that before I joined or not, or whether that come later. Um, so we didn't. There would have been songs that they did that we would have done, but nothing that was sort of directly associated to Noel as an individual. Because being in, when you're in a group, it's sort of like you're in a group, you know. Even though there's a lead singer and so and so, it's still just a group, and so that's the way people in the group view it, and uh, the public could see it differently, but the group doesn't, you know. So, as as a singer yourself, you never actually perform "Get a Little Dirt on Your Hands." No. No, we didn't actually do that. So probably stopped doing that. Maybe they felt that was better to not do that song. You know, I suppose it would have brought up a lot of emotions for the guys too. It could and, have, yep. uh, maybe, and 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 I, I don't know. I don't know what the reason, but I'm sure we never did it. I can't remember ever doing it. Can you remember your first official rehearsal as a Deltone? No, I can't remember the first time we got together. I don't know. It's so long ago. Again, it's 1962. 
So uh, back in the dark ages, <laughs> if any young people are listening to this, this podcast, uh, 1962 probably sounds like, you know, 1900 to me. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think so, no. Well, what came first of the Deltones, a live performances or recording? Uh, I enjoyed both. I mean, you know, the, the recording is, is quite good because you get a chance to do it again, you know, if you yep. don't like what you do. The first time you could say, oh, can we do another one? And, you know, you get it a little bit better or something. Uh, things are more perfect in the studio as far as getting balance right and, you know, getting it to sound. You can move the mic a bit and, you know, somebody can come in closer to the mic on live. You know, it's it's just what it is. But live is you're working to an audience and so you're getting that reaction back from the crowd of, you know, in a studio it's very clinical you go in there to do a job, and when you're doing it live, you're going there to entertain. Uh, so, did you do less. gigs with the Deltones first up, or did you guys head straight into the studio? No, 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 no. It was just live. Your first, uh, your first recording with the Deltones. It certainly wasn't a bad one. Come a little bit closer. Come a little bit closer. Did you realise that this was going to be the hit that it would go on to become? Could you feel any magic as you guys were recording this song? Not really, you know. Um, no, I mean, a lot of times that happens with songs. I've heard many other people talk about that that have been asked, you know, did they know it would become a big hit? And they, they don't. 
I don't think you know until you get the reaction. You right, know, okay, you yeah. do it and then you get reaction from your friends and all that who say, oh, that's great, you play it for them, and they, but they're your friends, they're not going to tell you it's terrible. And then all of a sudden, you know, if the people, if the public start buying it, the radio stations start playing it, all of a sudden it, it gathers momentum and, uh, and it's off and you don't know that till you release anything, I don't think. Prior to the release of the uh, Come a Little Bit Closer single, how were you feeling? You, you're the new member of the Deltones. You got this new single. Was there a bit of anticipation before the uh, the single came out? Uh, I don't know. I think it was just something we, we went in to record and we were doing our gigs and going around working. You know, I mean, we worked a lot, you know, and we did a lot of stuff. So it's just part of what you did back then. The music industry was was flourishing back in those days and uh, it's nothing like it is today for people it was just you were just busy so it was just another thing you did so I don't think we thought about it too much till it come out you know come a little bit closer it's released as a single in January 1963 Uh, it could not have gone much better for the Deltones peaking at number two and staying in the charts for incredible 19 weeks eventually the single would go on to be the highest selling Australian record for 1963 you could not have dreamed of a better transition heading into the Deltones no it was uh, it was pretty good it really boosted the group uh, you know after after the loss of Noel and the whole bit that the fact that it could come back and you know regain popularity and you know start to sort of go forward yeah no it was good it was uh it was something we were pretty happy about at the time the next single sitting in the moonlight oh well i'm sitting in the moonlight and i'm watching stars go by so please baby please give me one more chance because i'm sitting in the Let's make romance. Oh, my darling, come a little bit closer. I'll have no other noser, only you tonight. Because I'm sitting in the moonlight, and I'm watching stars go by. So please, baby, please give me one more chance. And this single was also a hit with Mary Ann on the flip side. Oh, had I but a flask of gin and sugar here for two and a great big bowl for to mix them in. I pour a drink for you, my dear Mary I pour a drink for you, my dear Mary The single was not released until June, presumably because Come a Little Bit Closer was still selling so well. Was Sitting in the Moonlight recorded at the same studio sessions as Come a Little Bit Closer? I think so. Uh, it could have been. Uh, it's a bit vague. I just, it's too long ago for me. We did so much recording. I mean, we recorded a hell of a lot. The Crescents recorded a bit, but the Deltones recorded a hell of a lot more. 
Um, so I haven't really listened to, you know, I, I don't listen to the old recordings. Funny enough, I just don't go back there. Um, I don't really like to listen to my own recordings very much of anything I do, even today. Um, I tend not to listen to them. I do them and then I think, yeah, that was okay. I, I think I can do the next one better. And so that's how it goes. By now, the, uh, the surf craze was in full swing. It seemed like every recording artist in Australia had a surf-styled song, many with tenuous links to surfing. However, it was the surf music that ruled the waves of the day. The Deltones were not to be outdone. Having originally formed at Bronte Surf Club, the Deltones were no surfing imposters. Of all the literally hundreds of surf music singles released in this period, to me, two songs stand head and shoulders above the rest. The Atlantic's Bombora... and the Deltones Hangin' Five. Oh, well, it's early in the morning and it's time to make a start And I put my poly surfboard on the rack upon my car I head down to the surfside where the waves are breaking fine I'm gonna catch a mountain, but I won't go down the mine You gotta walk the plank, ride the hook Corner left and right and keep it nice and tight And now the time is drawing near, you're moving down the wall now steady as she goes, you got your toes upon the nose And now you're hanging by, hanging by, hanging by Toes upon the Malibu And now you've hit the beach and you're feeling mighty fine You turn your board around for the second time You make it out the back, swells are coming fast The first ones are too small and so you take the last You gotta walk the bank, ride the hook must have heard Hangin' Five played in some strange places over the years. Yeah, yeah, it still gets played. Uh, if only I was getting the royalties. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, 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 it was great. And, um, you know, it was strange because it was just a terrible sounding thing when I heard it. 
when I first heard it, I thought, what am I going to do with this? You know, the guys had said, look, you know, here's this, here's this song, you know, have a listen to this guy's written this song and Ben Acton and uh, have a listen to it. I listened to it and I thought, oh, God, you know, it was just, it was dreary. It was dreary. All the chords were wrong and uh, everything was just a real amateur type sounding demo. And so I had to really rework it completely rework it to get it into something they said can you make it something like you know what the beach boys and so they you know we wanted sort of so okay so so that was it so i rebuilt you know just changed the tempo of it and changed the chords and stuff and and uh rearranged their harmonies and everything and we went in and did it and um that was it you know it it it, it come out differently well, you mentioned the songwriters, and strangely enough, Hanging Fire was co-written by a future New South Wales District Court Judge Fred Kirkham uh, and Ben Acton. These guys were both police constables stationed at Manly at the time. Um, apparently, the demo, as you, as you said, given to you, was totally different to yeah. to what came out on, on the record. So oh, very, very different. A, if you heard it, I wish I had or kept it, you know, because it really isn't. It's, it's something that you can't hear that what the version that we did in it it's really it was really different i i sort of almost said to the guys look you know forget this and then they said oh you know you have a go at it and so we started doing it and as we developed it it sort of came into something but um but when i first heard it i sort of was ready to sort of <laughs> put it in the bin <laughs> so i'm but sure luckily, you're glad, luckily yeah. i didn't glad you didn't now <laughs> glad i didn't yeah yeah so the deltones were known as one of the leading surf music groups your record company, which was Festival at the time, they did everything they could to capitalise on this success, releasing two full-length albums, as well as songs such as Out the Back. On the beach at sunrise, with my Malibu, watching Bella's Corner and hot dogging too. The waves are only a short way out, there isn't so much swell. And then from out of nowhere, I hear somebody Somebody shout I start to paddle harder My arms are getting tired I see a big one coming And then somebody Surfer Joe. Surfer Joe. Now look at him go. Oh, oh, oh. Surfer, surfer, surfer Joe. Oh, oh, man, go. Oh, oh, surfer Joe. Oh, oh, oh. And also great versions of Jan and Dean's Surf City. Surf City, here we come. You know it's not very 
Regents Barbara Ann, a song later made famous by the uh, the Beach Boys. The Deltones also borrowed the Beach Boys' iconic Surfing USA and retitled it Surfing Australia. If everybody had an ocean across a straight line, yeah, then everybody'd be surfing like California, yeah. You'd see them wearing their baggies, here I see sandals too. Bushy, bushy blonde hairdos down Australia way. You catch a turban in Melbourne, over the borderline. They're also turban in Queensland. The water there is fine. All over Hawaii, right down to Coogee Bay. This song could have easily gone wrong for so many reasons. However, showing the class of the delis, your version of the song still stands up quite well. Yes, granted there's some odd rhymes and it mentions surfing in Melbourne. There's not too much surfing happening in Melbourne these days. But uh, how did this particular song come about? And I also like how you mentioned Coogee Bay in one of your rhymes. So how did this Australian version of Surfing USA or Surfing Australia come about? Oh, gee, I don't know. I can't remember that one. That's... Uh that's one I can't sort of really help you with much. I don't remember how we did it. The Coogee Bay Hotel was a place that I started with after the Deltones uh, instrumentally. Um, that was the first, pretty much the first playing, saxophone playing gig I ever did. Uh, and of course the Deltones appeared at the Coogee Bay Hotel a lot. So that's the reference to the Coogee Bay, but I can't remember what, how we come about the song. But a lot of times the record companies would get an idea and they'd come to with an idea and, oh, how about you do this or something? And then, you, you know, okay, to keep them quiet, you know, you, you <laughs> keep them satisfied because you're under contract, you, um, you, you record something. So I don't know how well it did. Uh, you know, I just can't remember. It, it can't have been a big hit, I don't think. Well, it wasn't a huge hit, and as I said, it could have gone very, very wrong because <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's, a, I suppose, a bastardization of a song. But Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember it, but obviously it, I believe you that we did. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the Deltones are known as one of the hardest working groups at the time. The Deltones were still on top of the pops as far as the teenagers were concerned. However, the group had a strong following with the adult market. Often you guys would uh, perform a, a gig to the teenagers. You'd, you'd get out of your trendy gear, you'd pop on a tuxedo, you'd head across town and you'd play a gig to the, to the adult market and, you know, in, in the ballrooms and the nightclubs of the time. How did the, your voice handle this constant strain? Well, when you're doing it all the time, I think you're okay. Uh, you do get problems from time to time. Every singer does because, you know, your voice is, is fragile. If you, you, But try and tell Jimmy Barnes that. He doesn't have any trouble. <laughs> he, screams, he screams like crazy and nothing happens. He still sings. I did have a bit of trouble later on. You know, it started to I have a bit of trouble uh, vocally just you know after towards the end a bit i started to um have some problems you know like some nights it'd be a bit croaky or whatever okay yeah and um never lost my voice altogether thank god um but, but the constant work had you you were, yeah i mean match you, fit. i think you you match fit you know it's like a tennis player once they you know get on the court and they're doing it all the time all of a sudden they're you know it's all happening but you can still get an injury or yes. it's the same with your voice you can push it too much and but uh, i did, didn't have a lot of trouble with that as a group you've now been recorded by festival which you with lead on but lead on was bought out by festival and you released some excellent cover versions in 1964 walking along walking 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 Paper doll. I'm gonna buy a paper doll that I can call my own. A doll that other fellows cannot steal. And when those flirty, flirty guys with their flirty, flirty eyes will have to flirt with dollies that are real. When I come home at night, she will be waiting. She'll be the truest doll in all this world I'd rather have a paper doll that I can call my own Than have a fickle-minded real-life girl Hey girl, don't bother me And the wonder of you. To carry on, and you try to show your love for me. 
quality-wise, to me, these songs still stand alongside the American version, especially when you consider the head start the American artists had on you guys as far as far superior recording studios and the equipment. You must be proud of these songs 50 years down the track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I said, I haven't really listened to, haven't revisited them, but yeah, I think at the time they we were producing fairly good quality recordings, considering, as you say, you know, we didn't have the help that the that the other studios had of um, of being able to, you know, enhance recordings much. It was what it was. Yeah, the Yanks had the uh, the bells and the whistles, and you guys. No, we didn't. Yeah. We were definitely behind then, and we've caught up now, and we produce incredible recordings here now but uh of course equipment is much the same all over the world now but then it was very very different they they did have better stuff you know so in 65 the delis released two more singles in march you issued lonely boy i'm just a lonely boy side was the walk walk even though he tries to make you stay mm-hmm. walk. walk you can't believe a single word he'll say baby baby walk he'll break your heart if you don't break away keep your eyes off that guy and in September you release Tonight We Love. Tonight we love. Tonight we love. Backed by Don't You Care. Don't you dare do this to me. Don't you dare do this to me. Don't you dare do this to me. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. Every single time you promise me I'm the only one you'll ever see. But it's getting awful clear to me. This would turn out to be the uh, the group's final releases on Lead On, with the Deltones being let go by Festival. Did the parting of the ways with Festival come as a shock to you guys? Oh, I don't remember. I think we just moved on. You know, I mean, it, it was something that happened at the time, and you're busy anyway. So recording's only a part of what we did. You know, recording was not 
everything. It was just something that we did, you know, to keep it keeps you in the spotlight, more or less recording. If you don't record, there's nothing new. Nobody, they're looking, people are looking for something new. Uh, but we still, we were very busy, you know, as a group, as far as appearances go. We never stopped working. We were here, there and everywhere, you know. Popularity of the group never seemed to wane. No, we were always working. So when, you know, this happened, I guess we just went on, you know. So in 1966, the Deltones toured Asia and you played for the troops in Vietnam. This must have been a strange experience, performing for these young men whose futures were uncertain. Um, definitely, yeah. It was, uh, it was really one of those uh, experiences that, you know, uh, I'm glad I did it, but it was, uh, at the time, it was, uh, was pretty heavy over there in Vietnam. When you're touring around Vietnam, were you on high alert and on edge all the time? Did you have any near-miss experiences? Uh, I wouldn't say we had any near-miss experiences, although we travelled in open-air jeeps. To, to go to the bases, to perform in the bases. So I can remember the drivers sort of saying, oh, look, you know, I'd, we'd ask them, you know, is it okay around here? And they'd say, oh, well, you see the Viet Cong are sort of around here sometimes, you know, but they might be here today, you know. <laughs> I think when you're young, you just, you don't, you know, it was only 22 or 23 or something, 22, I think. Um, I don't think you think about things like that, mortality, you know, you don't, nobody, you don't think about dying at 22. Yep. And so I just, I think you thought about it, but not like, you know, if you're an adult, you're older, you'd be going, oh, no, I don't think I want to go in an open Jeep. Can I go in a Pope mobile or something, yeah. you know, something covered in, you know, okay, somebody fires a shot. So, yeah, and also in, in the evening, we're staying in the city in Saigon, uh, in the Mycord Hotel, and all night you'd hear, you know, you know, sirens and, you know, things going on all night, so you couldn't sleep, so it was so all you happening. you are in a war zone for sure. Oh, yeah, we were definitely near the war zone, yeah. Yep, and they must have been appreciative crowds. Yeah, they were, they were great, the troops were great, they, they really, you know, loved the entertainment, and uh, it was a great time, we did a whole lot of bases, and... Before that, we'd been to Hong Kong and um, Okinawa and um, Taiwan and different places doing gigs, and then Vietnam was part of the tour that we did. But yeah, no, it was a great time. It was great to, to great experience to do something like that. But it was, yeah, it was something that you'd sort of worry about more today. If you had to go and go to Iraq or something, I don't think I'd want to go there, you know. So in 1965, you, you had been learning to play the saxophone and you become quite proficient at the instrument. You obviously had like a great love for the instrument. Yeah, I've, I've always loved instrumental music because my dad, you know, had an incredible collection of, um, of uh, records. And also there was a lot of instrumental music. When I was young, uh, growing up, instrumental music was just as popular as vocal music, believe it or not. I mean, there was Harry James, trumpet player, uh, and there was Benny Goodman and Artie Shore and the Glenn Miller. This all, no lyrics, no vocals, no nothing. People had big hits. Uh, and so I grew up listening to a lot of vocal music, instrumental music, show music, music from films. And so I was always interested in the musical side of it, you know. So uh, the natural transition was to play an instrument. I was... You know, I didn't play the trumpet when I was a kid, so it was too late to start taking the trumpet up. It's too hard anyway, so saxophone looked 
okay, this looks good. <laughs> I think I'll give this one a go, yeah. And I was listening to saxophone players at the time and being attracted to the instrument, you know. So in Pee Wee's autobiography, it's titled, ironically, Come a Little Bit Closer. Uh, the, he said bands such as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones had changed the musical landscape and there wasn't much room left for, for vocal harmony groups. Did this sort of influence your decision to leave? No, I think my decision to leave was purely that I was um, I was getting sort of attention as an arranger. I was doing a lot of arrangements at that time for other groups. The Four Kinsmen and other people, local people, asked me to write arrangements. So I was doing arrangements for different things. Um, I was getting into my saxophone. I was getting into that, and I wanted to get into that further and do something with it. You, you can practice, but you need to go and do have the experience and I wasn't going to get that in the Deltones you know I'd sort of had my run with them it was five years I was with them 72 to 7 to 67 so it was just time to do it I started to get arranging work from Bandstand Uh, the musical director there was uh, Bob Young and he had heard some of the arrangements I'd done for the Deltones and he said look you know if you ever finish with them there's a job here for you at Channel 9 on staff with the arrangers if you want it we'll give you some work you know and he was terrific to me and so when I left uh, I started to get work doing that so I just went from one thing to the other pretty much straight away I left the Deltones next minute I was playing at the Coogee Bay Hotel with the soulmates uh, and that so that's how it happened I didn't uh, you know choose to leave because I didn't like them. There was something else I had to do. That was it. It was time to move to the next chapter, you know. Here's a favourite of the Deltones, Cotton Fields. When I was a little bitty baby, my mama would rock me in the cradle, in them Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to part one, and be sure to listen to part two of Cole Loughnan's amazing career. Thanks for your time, Cole, and thanks to the Crescents and the Deltones for the music. If you enjoyed the episode, please click subscribe, and if you could leave a review or rating at iTunes, that would be unreal. If you have any guest requests or suggestions, you can email me at mycoast2 at bigpond.com. That's M-Y-C-O-A-S-T, the number two, at bigpond.com. Or like our Facebook page at All Australian Music Stories. I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, hail, hail, Australian rock and roll. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. This is Molly Kid saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl!